So let me ask you some questions as we get started here. When you think of Jesus, do you have a picture that comes into your mind of what he looks like, I mean? You know, there's one photo, I remember this as a child, my grandmother had it on her wall, a photo that was produced by Warner Smallman, and it says been been reproduced over 500 million times. And it's this headshot of Jesus, maybe you've, you've seen it, uh, where he's looking to the side, and he's got this wavy hair that's long and a beard, of course. And it, he's looking out at something, not quite sure what he's thinking of, uh, not quite sure what he's looking at. And, and in that photo, I remember looking at it a lot as a kid, it looked calm, you know, as Jesus was peaceful, maybe even a little weak, you know, sublime Jesus here. And he looked in that photo like he would never be angry or bothered. Um, he also didn't look like he'd ever be happy. Didn't look like he ever had fun. You know, as a child, it was kind of confusing. Is this the Jesus that we read in Scripture? I mean, maybe there are other images that you've seen, or there's a lot that are, that are out there, you know, that you've seen on the Internet. So what comes into your mind when you think of Jesus? Well, how do you picture him? And maybe your Jesus is one who's ready for a fight at any moment. Maybe Jesus for you is just chilling with his homeboys, as I've seen. Maybe Jesus is sitting in a lotus position, you know, meditating. Or Who is the Jesus that you picture? Some picture Jesus as a a good teacher. I mean, he loved to teach, right? Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, he taught about the greatest commandment. He taught a lot of of parables. Usually we we picture Jesus, though, the way we want to, whatever fits us in the need of the moment, though. Maybe Jesus is a a guru for you. He, He shows you how to live. You know, this, this is the pattern, the example, so just follow this step by step and you'll be good. Or Jesus is your friend. He's just there to hang out. He's your buddy. He's cool with you. He's cool with how you live. You, know, you don't get in his way. He doesn't get in your way. Everything's cool. Maybe Jesus is your therapist. He, he helps you to get in touch with your feelings. He helps you feel better. What do you think about? Who, who, how do you picture Jesus? Do you really know him? You know, many of us approach this, this, this topic, this picture of, of who he is with some sort of stereotype in our mind. And so we, we've tried to fit him into that narrow view. This morning, we're going to look at two seemingly different stories in the Gospel of John that paint a, a clear picture of, of Jesus. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John And we're going to go through chapter 2 this morning, all of chapter 2. And I'd ask that you just follow with me as I read the verses here on the screen behind me. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Join me as we pray before we get started. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage of scripture that we can open up and discuss. I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that I would be your mouthpiece here. Father, as we look into your word, help us to recognize who Jesus is, that he's Lord of the wine, Lord of the whip, that he has a, an agenda, a plan. He's not misguided. He's not confused. He's not lost. He knows why he is here in this story and what he has to do. And Father, help us to understand this. Help us to apply it. I pray, God, that we will leave this place this afternoon different than when we came in and that you would receive all the honor and all the glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. What you read here this morning in this second chapter is that Jesus saves one party and he ruins another. You might be coming here this morning thinking you know Jesus really well, but I want to encourage you, even in what you know, to look at this text and approach it with humility, that God would teach and that we could learn together. There's two different scenes in this chapter Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding with some friends, and Jesus then clears the temple in Jerusalem. Both of these stories are very well known if you've been in church very long. You've probably read this or heard this talked about. But as you see as the stories and the scenes unfold, that it begins here at a wedding, a very important wedding, one that was very, I believe, near and dear to Jesus and his family. And it says there that at this wedding, Jesus is there along with his mother and his disciples. And we know last week of who the disciples are at this point, right? Andrew, Peter, Philip, John, and Nathaniel are at least there. They're at the wedding. And it's a joyous occasion. We love weddings, don't we? To attend weddings, you smile usually. Usually a great place to catch up with friends, with family. They're a momentous occasion to see a commitment displayed. We enjoy weddings. And so Jesus has been invited to this wedding and we 
as I said earlier, it's probably a friend or a close relative. And there's also some, some deeper connection here, as you see in the story, especially for Mary and, and to the family and what's going on. She has some sort of responsibility. In this culture, weddings were a very big affair for the family and for the friends and for the village. It says that weddings could last up to a week. But usually, the very minimum was two to three days. So as you come into this story, that's what we're coming into, this setting. There would be lots of food, lots of good food. There would be drinks, lots of drinks. There would be probably dancing and talking and having a good time with your friends and family. It was a time that you, you looked forward to because everything in life at that moment stops. You don't have to go to work for a week. How many of you enjoy that now for weddings in our culture, right? The hand wrote really quick. To enjoy fellowship with family and friends and to celebrate for that long, that's what they would look forward to. You wouldn't have any obligations for that time. You were at a wedding. You were there to enjoy each other. And I can imagine for myself that Jesus is there. He's, he's sitting and talking with people. He's, he's fellowshipping with one another. Maybe he begins to play with the kids, you know, playing some games. He's laughing. He's tickling. He's wrestling them. He enjoys the kids. He's conversing with people. He's asking how, how things are going, although he knows. But he wants to know them more. He wants to ask questions and draw them out. And I can imagine people saying, I like this Jesus. He's joyful. I have to spend time with him. But in the story, something goes wrong. All right, there's an issue really quick here. Verse 3, they have run out of wine. Now, Mary, in her connection to the party, comes to Jesus and I want you to understand, for a wedding in this culture, running out of wine was a very big deal. Because if a wedding was going to last two to three days up to a week, if you run out of the drink of the day, you're in trouble. It was also very embarrassing for the groom and the family. John MacArthur writes, he says, such an embarrassing faux pas could have stigmatized the couple and their families for the rest of their lives. Could have even left the groom and his family open to a lawsuit by the bride's family for failing to meet the responsibilities. This is how serious it is when you walk into this wedding. It's, it's agreed upon that that's what's to happen. And so in verse 3, we come to it, and now there's a huge, serious dilemma. They've run out of the drink. Why? And Jesus responds to his mom. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I believe Jesus is not being rude to his mom. This is not a sinful response. Jesus is unable to sin. It seems strange to us in our culture, the response, and I was talking back, and I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. I believe that Jesus is thinking about something else here. But Mary, though, says to the servants to do whatever Jesus says. And this is significant. This verse is very significant because this is where Mary transitions from being Jesus' mother. You know, the, the one who gave birth to him, the one who fed him, the one who changed his poopy diapers and dressed him and picked him up when he fell and put band-aids on him, who cared for him. And now she's transitioning from this role as mother to now disciple. This is incredibly significant she must follow him too. So no matter what the Catholic Church says, they're wrong. Mary is not perfect. She does not get a free pass. 
She must submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And what you read here in her response is understanding her position and who Jesus is. She recognizes it. She knows Jesus is to be her Savior. But Jesus already decided to do something. It says in verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it and they obeyed. And you know, the rest of the story there. Now Jesus acts, and this is huge. Jesus takes water and makes wine. And the master of the feast is, is unaware that Jesus did this, but he's very impressed with the groom and his family because they serve better wine at the end. You know, it says the master of the feast is, is sort of like the master of ceremonies for this. He's the guy that keeps the party moving, but keeps the celebration going. And if you're talking uh, two to three days or a week, this is a big job to keep it going. And he's been the guy placed in charge by the groom's family. And he's, he's shocked to see that the groom's family waits to supply the party with, with the better wine at the end. This is not normal. And I, I need to spend just a brief moment here and say this is wine, Okay. It's wine. It's, it's true that their wine would probably be diluted in some way, but it's, it's wine. It had alcohol content. It's probably still at the rate of our wine today, and I really don't need to debate that because that's not the point of the text. That's not the reason why he's writing it. You know, the, the, the text has showed a miracle of what Jesus does, of taking plain water and turning it into something, wine, without the process of fermentation. So don't get scared when you read this. Don't, don't read too much into this. Jesus is not encouraging for us to get drunk in this passage. Because we read in the New Testament multiple times that we should not be drunk with wine. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I don't, I don't believe this is the center of the text. It isn't. The focus isn't so much the drink. The focus is Jesus and what he does. God in the flesh took six pots of water and created wine. The best wine, he says. About 150 gallons of wine, probably. This is significant. He uses pots that are used for ceremonial cleansing and fills them with water to supply this party, this, this wedding party with wine, making something dirty now and clean, presentable. And Jesus, ultimately in this passage, he saves the party. It's strange to me as I, as I begin to read, this is his first miracle, and it's at a wedding. It seems so insignificant. Why would he start here? With a seemingly insignificant situation, but God, to him, it's not insignificant at all. So that's the first part of chapter two. Let's look at the second part. And maybe you think Jesus looks pretty cool here and collected, pretty calm. And he looks very different in the second half. John informs us that it's the Passover, one of the big feasts for the Jewish faith, one that pointed them back to the deliverance of their people from Egypt, led by Moses. And during that time, people flooded the city to make their sacrifices at the temple. They also needed to change money to make those purchases of animals to sacrifice. I remember many times when I flew international flights and land in the airport, one of the first things you do is go to the booth and look to exchange American currency for the local currency so that you could have money to purchase what you needed. That's the idea here. 
But for the scene, this scene, the money exchanging process was usually outside and away from the temple, but it, which would allow people to come and worship. But now it's, it's different. They're inside. It was called the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be a place for prayer and preparation for worship. They moved into the temple. And Jesus now responds to what he sees in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and they poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And something happens inside the Lord. Instead of taking deep breaths and instead of saying serenity now and relaxing, he gets angry and he does something about it. He makes a whip of cords. This isn't necessarily a weapon. It's a, it's a cord most likely made from straw. A few brushes like a straw switch. He really couldn't do much damage with it, but he's going to show them what he felt of their actions. Jesus is angry. He doesn't sin. It's righteous anger. And he makes quite a scene with the people. Can you picture this? The response of the people as Jesus is coming through, flipping tables over, animals begin to run, money pouring out into the floor. He, he creates chaos and fear. Jesus doesn't want his father's temple to be like this. He doesn't want his temple to be commercialized. He doesn't want his temple to look and smell like a mall for shopping. He wants his temple to be holy, a place where people are free to come and not be bombarded with distractions. So we see Jesus saves the party and upsets the temple. Jesus comes into a wedding and does a small thing because he cares about the little things. And then Jesus goes into the temple and is angry. He has an emotional side. He isn't sitting there cross-legged in a meditation form. No, he's angry. So what's going on in these seemingly different stories? What I see here as I study this week is that we see Jesus as Lord of the wine and Jesus as Lord of the whip. And all of that was my introduction, so. I'll talk fast. First, he's the Lord of the wine. I want you to recognize Jesus is in charge in this story. He isn't passive. He isn't controlled by anyone or the party. He is not controlled by his mother. He's in full control of what he does. And in his first miracle, Jesus is pointing us to something much greater than wine. But I want to ask some questions. When you go to a wedding, what do you think about? Now, there's two types of people that go to a wedding, okay? This is really deep. There are those that are married and those that are not. Just want to make sure I can lay it out for you. So if you're not married, what do you think about at a wedding most likely? You either think about your wedding or you think about how you don't want to be married. I told you it's really deep. One of the two. You desire to be married or you desire not to be married. And if you desire to be married, you begin to see the prospects in your life. You start thinking about that, the possibilities. And it's, it's different for man and woman. I, I realize that. For men, you're usually thinking about the wedding day, how beautiful your bride will be. You know, as a pastor, I have an unusual view of weddings now as I perform weddings because I, I always get to be at the front. 
And, and I say before multiple times during premarital counseling and before I'll say to the groom, now, now there's gonna be a lot of things that are distracting this. People, maybe nervousness, you know, don't buckle you don't, your knees, those sort of things. But I want you to do one thing and I'll say, you look and you wait for your bride. You wanna see that. For the soon-to-be bride, and I'm not sure what's going on in, mind, in her mind when she's at a wedding, probably a million things, right? The food at your wedding, the guests, the decorations, the dress. So when you're at a wedding, your mind begins to race. Maybe start thinking, when will it be? Who will it be with? Will it be soon? Will it ever happen? And if you are married and you're attending a wedding, what do you think about? You think about your wedding, don't you? For men, we picture our brides. I don't have a whole lot of other memories, but I remember Katie walking down the aisle. I have no idea what we ate at our wedding. So I can't think, I can't speak for the women. Weddings affect us, though, right? They're intended to do that. You should think of your wedding when you go to someone else's wedding. Now, now follow with me and see why this ties in. I want to explain this. Because I believe that Jesus was thinking of his wedding here. It wasn't an earthly wedding because Jesus never got married. It was the future wedding. The image of a wedding is littered throughout the scriptures. Jesus is the bridegroom and we the church is the bride. In the book of Revelation chapter 19, also written by John, we read of the groom finally getting his bride on her wedding day and the celebration that follows, the joy and intimacy. And every wedding you attend here on earth is a foretaste to that wedding. You know what? Jesus knows something more. And he thinks of his wedding day, he's thinking of something more. Well, I have asked, but let me come back to this. What do you think of? You know, every girl... And I, I'm, I'm beginning to realize this more. I have four daughters, so I'll hear more about this as time goes on. You can pray for me. We're starting to save money now. So thankful it's not a week-long wedding. But every girl, I'm sure, thinks about the, what dress are they going to wear. You know, they start thinking about the color scheme, I'm sure. Every girl thinks of, of the new name that she will have, even eliminating guys that she knows that, that she's possible looking at because Julia Gulia sounds silly. So she doesn't want to be married to that guy. She begins to, to think of furniture. She begins to think of dishes. She begins to think of what the house will look like. She begins to think of the people that will attend and be a part of that special day. She begins to think of forever with that person. All good things as you walk through and think of that day. Do you know what Jesus thinks of, of his wedding? He thinks of death. Because for his wedding to take place, he has to die for his bride. He thinks of the cup. So I believe that Jesus is not caught off guard by Mary's initial question to Jesus. He was already there. He was there when weddings were instituted. He knows the purpose of it. 
God doesn't take suggestions from us and how we should act. That's why he says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. Isn't that a strange response to saying, hey, they ran out of drink. Jesus is telling her, my death is not yet come. And John uses this terminology throughout the book. He says the hour, which is a term to point to his death. All, all this joy that comes to us in this life and the life to come, all come through the suffering of Jesus Christ. All the love and the intimacy that we have with Jesus as the bride comes through his sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross. So Jesus, at this wedding, sees the cup, and he knows what needs to happen. We, we should never look at the cross as just a simple sign made of wood. The cross signifies death. The cross shows us that we are sinners. The cross shows us that Christ is perfect. The cross shows us the magnitude of our sin and the incredible love of our Savior. And Jonathan Edwards wrote, Never did God so manifest his hatred of sin as in the death and suffering of his only begotten son. Hereby he showed himself unappeasable to sin and that it was impossible for him to be at peace with it. So if you're able ever to taste the joyous, delicious wine that day in Revelation 19, it's only through Jesus' death. He drank the cup of bitter, awful wrath of God. And Jesus walked to that cross with all the infinitely holy, infinitely righteous wrath of God, due sin that was to be about poured on him. Some preachers say in that, 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 that God the Father turned away because he couldn't bear to see what they would do to him. But absolutely not. He couldn't bear to see your sin and my sin upon his son. And in that moment, he took the full wrath of God. Do our sin. It was like you and I are standing before a dam, 10,000 miles high, 10,000 miles wide, full to the brim with water. And in the instant, that dam is let loose and all the water is rushing toward us. And right before the water is there to overtake you, the ground in front opens up and swallows up every single last drop. And in a much, much greater way, on the cross, Jesus took the full wrath of God, do your sin and my sin upon himself. And he took every last drop from that cup and he turned it over and he said, it is finished. Amen? And this is the gospel. And every month we celebrate communion. And part of this communion service that we celebrate is that we have a drink, we have Juice that signifies wine. And that shows us his blood. And so when Jesus responds to his mom, he's saying, I will supply the wine. I will do this. I will give myself for the bride. Even though we're wicked and wrong and dark and unlovable and have hate in our heart and anger towards people. Jesus says, I died for you. God sent a groom for you, to love you, to marry you, to stand with you, 
to be with you, to protect you, to supply for you, to help you. Yes, he is our king. He is our captain. He is our Lord, but he is our bridegroom, giving his life for the bride. That would be enough for today just to get through that portion, but yet there's more. Jesus is not only the Lord of the wine, he's the Lord of the whip. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went to Jerusalem. And then at the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is stunningly good news of the gospel is that even though we walked away from God, our God refuses to walk away from us. God refused to live with this separation and said God became like any parent who loses a child. God's consuming passion became the bridging of the separation which had been created by sin. God spared no expense in working towards the day when he and his beloved children could be together again. And some days it seems like this is too much to believe. It's, 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 it's too good to be true. But this is the truth. The great desire of our creators to be with us, his creation, and God's desire to walk with us, to live with us, to enjoy us, to bless us. And we need to be reminded that the entire Old Testament of the Bible is really just the story of God setting the stage for his great journey to come and to find us and to bring us home so that we can be together again. And the choice of Abraham and his descendants as God's people, the deliverance of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, the vision of the promised land, the establishment of David as king, the revelations of the great prophets, all of this and so much more are really just preparations of God's coming to us. All of this leads us to Christ, the son of God who was sent by the father from heaven to earth, full of grace and full of truth on a rescue mission that would lead him to the cross. You know, the entire Old Testament is a preparation for this great reunion. And one particular aspect of the Old Testament, which was meant to prepare people for this reunion was God in the temple. As you remember, in the ancient times, God established the temple in Jerusalem as a place on earth where God could come and meet with his people and they, they were with him. It was a place where men and women could offer up sacrifices of animals and through the spilling of blood, they'd find themselves, if only temporarily, made right with God. But the temple was just a dress rehearsal. It was only a shadow of the real thing which was to come. God was present with his people, the temple. Sacrifices were offered that fixed things for a time, but it was only a temporary fix. For our hearts are prone to wander. And so it would not be until the Messiah, the true lamb of God, that would come into the world and it would spill his blood and sacrifice for us. And that full and lasting reconciliation could be achieved. And so until that day arrived, until that happened, the temple had been established in the meantime to keep us pointing towards what was going to happen, pointing to the future. And during the, the, the early part of the first century, the temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt. And soon it became once again the beating heart of all Jewish life. 
Every day in those days, the temple was filled with people coming to seek God. And the greatest of these feast days was the Passover, the celebration of the time when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. So we can imagine that the typical pilgrim to the Passover feast would have been a young man, maybe, who leaves his village and family and out of a genuine devotion to God, travels many miles to worship and to sacrifice. Imagine with me as I, as I studied and looked in commentaries and, and, and I want to paint a picture here with help. Imagine with me, with me a devout Jew and this, this man's dream, his lifelong dream is to be in worship in person at the temple in Jerusalem on Passover, to, to meet God at the temple. And such an experience would have been the climax of his religious life. And he makes his way to Jerusalem. He's, he's bursting with anticipation. He has heard the stories countless times before. Long ago, God came and saved his people from Egypt and, and brought them back to the promised land. And God did it once, and he believes that God will do it again. This is his hope. This is what drives him to the temple. Like many of you on Sunday mornings, this man comes to this sacred place hoping to meet with God, to worship and to praise his God who's been faithful to him. And he comes to offer gifts that, that helps express his gratitude. He comes to make a sacrifice that he believes will make him right with God just for a time. And when he, when he finally arrives at the temple, however, the scene is quite different than he ever imagined. You know, the building is enormous and the crowds are, are large and overwhelming. And he expected that. But the scene somehow lacks the reverence that is expected for this place. The temple in Jerusalem on Passover is the most sacred space on earth. And yet the space has been turned into a circus. In fact, the entire outer court of the temple, the court typically reserved for the Gentiles to come and worship is jammed full of booths and exhibits. Everywhere there are vendors selling animals exchanging coins, working the crowd, promoting their business. So after asking around for a while, the man soon discovers that to even enter the temple, he must first pay the temple tax of one half shekel. In other words, it's two full days wages just to get inside. And so when he realizes it and tries to go pay the cover charge, he is promptly told that his foreign currency is no good here. It's unclean. It's polluted. Only Galilean shekels or shekels of the sanctuary are valid here. And so he needs to visit one of the other booths where the money changers are. And so he finds out that he'll be offered an exchange rate that's less than fair. This man is beginning to feel like you and I when we go to a Seahawks game and we're hungry. Here our friends say, you should have bought the peanuts outside. Because inside, a hot dog is $7 and a soda is 10 feel like you've been betrayed. What is this man going to do now? He's traveled all this way to meet with his God. He's got no other options. If he has the money, he's got to pay what they ask him to pay. If he doesn't, he's out of luck. On the bright side, at least on his way into town, he found a fair price for a lamb and bought it so that he would have something to sacrifice. He wouldn't dream of coming to a temple on Passover without a lamb to sacrifice. To his surprise, however, though, as he enters the temple, he is told that the lamb that he has brought does not pass quality control. What he needs is a lamb that can be temple certified, one that is flawless and unblemished. The common lamb that he bought on the street just won't do. Fortunately for him, there are other vendors inside the temple courts 
who would be more than happy to sell him a suitable animal. Unfortunately, those animals cost nearly twice as much as the lamb that he already paid for. So at last, with his money exchanged and the taxes paid and the certified lamb that he's holding and paid for, he finally makes his way into the inner courts of the temple where in spite of all that he's been through, he still hopes that he can worship and meet with his God. He's far less optimistic at this point, though. This experience has been nothing like he expected. But at least, at least he thinks to himself, at least I'm not a Gentile. If I was a Gentile, I would have to go through everything I just went through, and then I'd have to stay out here in the outer court, and somehow, in the midst of this circus, this chaos, worship God. Can you imagine the lowing of oxen, the bleeding of sheep, the cooing of doves, the shouts of businessmen hawking their goods, the rattle of coins, the voices raised in bargaining disputes? It's like going to a Seahawks game. How could any man, no matter how dedicated and focused, meet God in a place like that? So as you have this scene in your mind, Jesus walks into this temple. And Jesus walks into this temple not just as a normal man. He's God. He was, in fact, the very God all those people were coming to worship. the eternal son of God, the savior of the world, who had, after ages of prophecy and preparation, at last come to earth to become one of us, to satisfy God's all-consuming passion to be reunited with us, his people. This Jesus was the same God who years before had established this very temple in Jerusalem and established it as a place where people could come and meet with God. It was Jesus' intention that the temple would be a sign pointing to a time when all the barriers between God and God's people would forever be torn down. It is this Jesus on his grand mission to reunite God with his people who walks in the temple that day just before Passover. And what does he find when he gets there? He finds this circus that I described to you. And the one place above all places on earth that has been established to allow people to come freely and to meet God and to sacrifice and to worship, Jesus discovers that all sorts of barriers have been set up to keep people at a distance from God. So are you surprised now at Jesus' reaction? How would you respond if someone stood in the way and kept your long-lost beloved from finding their way and finding their way back to you? Jesus is angry. And he drives them out. Can you blame him? Remember John the Baptist in the prior chapter declaring who Jesus is. Is He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Folks, this is temple language. He is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. Jesus, again, is pointing their hearts and their mind away from the present to the future. Jesus is the Lord of the whip. And when they questioned by the Jews looking for a sign after this, looking for, for proof that Jesus says and is who he says, In verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Success. Right there in that verse, John says, John, and Jesus is teaching us throughout this gospel, and the goal throughout the gospel, as I said before, and it's up here on the slide, the point is that we believe, and that through belief we'd have life. We should have this verse memorized by the time we're done with John. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus comes to give life. Jesus is teaching them and those surrounded that this temple built by man is not as significant as the Lord himself. He has authority. He is God. He has come to make a way for us to be saved once and for all. Jesus is not controllable. He's not tame. He's very unhappy with unholiness and will not tolerate it. He is angry when people make church like the world. There are many things you can learn in this passage, the second half of chapter 2. But one thing is that you're not to be like Jesus in this way. You do not have that authority. What I want to ask, and I want you to ask yourself, is he turning over tables in your own life? You may think that the first part where Jesus is turning water into wine is pretty cool. But what about the whips? It feels threatening. You may have to change and give up some things that, you're not, that are not holy, that are not causing holiness. Jesus may take away some things. You may have to realize that you're really not in control after all. Jesus may need to take away things that you love too much. He may need to turn over a table that you have set up. Are you living with Jesus with your hands stretched out to hold him back from things that you really love? Maybe you have to give up pornography. You have to give up gambling. You have to give up your anger. You have to give up your unholy relationship with your boyfriend. You have to give up your money and let God have control of it. You cannot have God in your life and then live any way you want. Jesus will not be added to your schedule. He won't be added to the other gods that you worship. He will overturn tables in your life. Has he come and done this for you? Guess what? He won't leave you to yourself. He's there to do the work, to guide and to leave. He has given us his word. He's given us directions. He's given us his spirit to live within us. And guess what? He gave us the church. The church is not just a place we go on Sunday. We are the body of Christ. And the point of the church family is so that you won't suffer alone. But so much of the time, we, we just want to attend on Sunday and pop out for the week and then pop back in on Sunday. First part of it, Jesus says, I died for you, the bride. We are a family. 
If all church is for you is just popping in one week and then seeing you six days later, you're missing out. Because as God does this work in our life, as he overturns tables that we have set up, that we want to keep, and it's hard and it's difficult, if we go about it alone, we miss out on what God has for us. Point of the church family is so that we don't suffer alone. But what do we do with these stories? The first thing I realize is that Jesus cares about the little things in our life. And the first miracle proves it. He saved a guy from a serious social embarrassment, a a faux pas. That's what it was. This was not life-threatening. And what it teaches me is that Jesus cares about my life. He cares about your life. He cares about your tests that you have in school. He cares about your job. He cares about your car. He cares about all the little things in your life. So remember to go to Jesus. He cares He knows about it already. And in those situations, those difficult situations, I want to encourage you to control your joy in those moments. And what do I mean by that? Yesterday, we had the privilege, I did, of preaching the funeral for Louis Sires. He would smile every time I saw him. And one thing I learned from Louis is he was joyful, no matter what. Do you realize that you can choose joy? You you can control your joy. It's something that you can do. It's it's not okay to say, well, today I'm going to have a bad day. And then let your actions and words and behavior go that direction. It's not okay. Remember that God loves you in the little things and and control your joy in the midst of the struggle. We as believers, you know, we should be known by others as joyful people. Do people look at you and think, yeah, he's joyful? Or do they look at you and run away? Because you don't look joyful. You don't act joyful. Why, why should we be the most joyful people in the world? Because we have hope. We have life past this life. So I know some of you, you need to work on this. I'll encourage you, because I do too. We need to hold each other up in this. Encourage one another. The second thing I learned from this passage is we need to learn to submit to God's timing. You know, this is what you see in Mary's response to Jesus. It is not like she wore out Jesus. It's not like... She just kept going, asking him again, come on, Jesus, please, pretty please, sugar on top, do something about this wine shortage. Jesus, I know you can do this. She doesn't come and lay guilt upon him. It's not like Jesus, after being prodded multiple times, finally says, fine, I'll do it. he's, He's not. He already knew. He has things under control. It didn't catch him off guard. He is Lord of the wine. And he sets the agenda with blessing. He gives generously in his timing. But it's in his timing, not in ours. And Mary shows us, Mary teaches us in this passage when she says, 
Do whatever he tells you to. And we don't always know what to do when difficulties come into our life. For a lot of us, we want to fix them. We want want to know what the answer is, and we want to go about fixing it because we don't want to wait. We're unsure of the timing of Jesus, so so we, we, we feel like we need to control it and do it now. But Jesus is in control, and he cares about the little things. We need to trust him. And there's nothing, there's nothing that is so insignificant because if Jesus turns water into wine for a party, he can work in your life. Folks, I needed this passage. One of the joys I have as a pastor is I get to study and learn all week and then kind of spew out what God has taught me. I want to be an encouragement to you guys to continue to to seek after him and to learn these things, to recognize it. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the picture that we have in this passage this morning. That we as the church... We are your bride. You gave up your life for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for my sin, for our sin. Help us to never get tired of that, of remembering it, of thinking about it. Because you died for us, God, you have given us your spirit to live within us. Help us to not be satisfied with sin. Help us to repent, to turn away. Father, I pray for our church family that we learn and that we're learning how to live with one another. I pray for those here today that just come on Sundays. And they're missing out on the church fellowship throughout the week. And they're, go- they're going about life all on their own. I think it's just, just me and God, and yet ignoring the church, the bride. Help them, encourage them, convict them to give more of themselves back to other people. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.